Okay, so last time I told you that uh, I was going to deal with um, Matthew 24, uh, the Olivet Discourse, before we come to uh, before we come to uh, Revelation chapter six. Um, but I, I've since changed my mind, uh, and the reason the reason I've done that is because I actually I, I prepared Matthew 24. I studied. Uh, I even recorded it, and and I have the recording of me going through Matthew 24. Um, but what I found was in doing that. Um, I was going to say the same things about the events in Matthew 24 uh, that I'm going to say about Revelation 6. So it would have been uh, it would have been two uh, two episodes of basically saying the same things. Uh, commentators have have long known uh, no matter what what view of Revelation you take or or what side of the spectrum you fall on. Uh, commentators have long known that uh, the events that Jesus predicts in Matthew 24, Luke 21, what's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, they parallel the events that go on in Revelation uh, chapter 6. You have the wars, the rumors of wars. You have the earthquake, the famine, the decreation language with the stars being darkened and falling. You have you have the, the same events going on there that you have here. And so um, I, I didn't want to just go through the same thing twice and say the same things about the same events twice. So I figured since it is a study in Revelation, I'll just stick with Revelation chapter 6. Um, but I do want to uh, make plain um, where we're headed. Uh, and I haven't done that yet. And there's a reason why I haven't done that. Um, I, I wanted to. There's lots of different views of Revelation. We've talked about that many times. And I, I wanted to give you. Uh, a sense of my methodology, a, a baseline of of how I interpret the book, how I interpret these apocalyptic, prophetic, symbolic terms, these things from the Old Testament. Uh, I hope that you've started at the very beginning, chapter one, the introduction and chapter one, and followed me through the first five chapters of uh, of the book of Revelation. So you have a, a kind of a feel of how I'm, I approach the study of the text. I don't um, I don't read it with a newspaper in hand looking to match events going on in the Middle East. And, you know, that's how people have done that for centuries. Uh, the key to understanding the book of Revelation, I hope you've seen by now is the Old Testament. Good John uses um, uses the pictures and the symbols that the prophets of the Old Testament use to uh, to show their fulfillment in, in, in you know in the events that he describes. Um, so I'm not going to leave you hanging anymore. <clears throat> I'm going to tell you, and if you've been listening, you probably already know. I do believe that Revelation was written before AD 70, and I do believe that most of the book of Revelation is describing the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army in in 70, the destruction of the temple, destruction of the of Jerusalem, and basically the, the judgment of God wiping away the remnants of the old covenant, <clears throat> excuse me, wiping away uh, biblical Judaism off the face of the planet. Um, it has never returned. There is Judaism today. There is a, a, a state that was reestablished in the in the late forties uh, called Israel over there in the Middle East, and and you know there is national Israel. There is Judaism, but it's not biblical Judaism. There is no temple. There is no uh, sacrifices, the rites and the rituals and the the ceremonies and all those things that go along with biblical Judaism have never returned. 
after um, after the destruction in in seventy. Um, let me let me also make this clear: I do not believe the entire book of Revelation is uh, is fulfilled. So uh, there is a segment of people out there that would say that the whole thing's done and we're not waiting on anything; it's all completed. I'm not one of those. Uh, we're going to see in the book of Revelation. Um, toward the toward the end of the book, we're going to see uh, a transition that John makes where he is talking about future events. He is talking about the second coming of Christ, the end of history, the the new heavens, the new earth. We're going to see that uh, there is a, a moment where that shift is uh, is made from speaking about the things that uh, that uh, happened during the siege of Jerusalem, when uh, when basically the world's army, Rome, was composed of many nations, many auxiliaries that Rome had conquered, and basically the entire world's army came against Jerusalem, um, there is going to be a shift in Revelation where he is talking about the true um, times of the end when when he will return and all things will be made new and all those. So we are going to see that. The difference between most people and me is... Uh, um, I put the I put the distinction I put the I put the transition later in the book of Revelation where most people uh, the predominant view today is dispensationalism which uh, will put that that um, that shift into the the times of the very end in in chapter four and we've already seen that we've already walked through chapter four so what I want you to see as I as I walk through these is. Uh, I'm not going to change my methods. The methods that I've used uh, to um, to interpret the book uh, so far are the same methods I'm going to employ uh, as we go forward, and I believe that that's a correct uh, that's a correct uh, methodology using scripture to interpret scripture rather than the newspaper and the events that we see and, and all those things. But I do also want to say this um, because um, John has told us these things are soon to come to pass. That he was talking to the first century church, uh, what must soon take place, and, and uh, at the end of the book he says, "Don't seal these up because the time is at hand," and and all those indicators. Because Revelation is discussing uh, the events that uh, transpired when judgment came on uh, the remnants of the Old Covenant, um, that doesn't mean it doesn't have significance for us today. Um, it, it teaches us the same way that the book of Romans teaches us. Paul was writing to a real church in Rome about real events, about real things, about salvation, about redemption, and about Christian life. And, and the same applies to Revelation. He, he was writing to seven churches. He was writing uh, about real events, real things that were going on, and it is going to apply. It's scripture. It's God-breathed. It's inspired, and it's going to apply to, uh, it's going to, apply to people in all, in all eras and all um, uh, generations, but it is a prophecy, and, and prophecies have have direct fulfillment as well as application to our lives. So, um, let me start this by just giving you. A lot of people are might be confused, and basically, maybe don't understand exactly what happened in, in seventy A.D. Um, it was it was apocalyptic by its very nature. Um, the Romans came and and uh, they uh, Vespasian was the name of the general. He came and he conquered city after city. He conquered the whole whole area. There were rebellions and all these things going on. And Caesar sent uh, his general Vespasian uh, just to subdue the entire area. And he went town by town, city by city, um, conquering 
conquering and and subduing them. And what he was doing, it was actually pretty strategic. He was shoring up his backside, so when he got to Jerusalem, nobody could attack him from the rear. But he was also driving the Jews toward Jerusalem, and he had them in. You know, when he got there, they were held up in the in the city, and he surrounded the city, laid siege to the city, which means he didn't let anything in, didn't let anything out. No food going in, no food coming out. Uh, people coming out were 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 killed. Um, and and so he he basically cut them off. And what happened inside the city is um, it, it's just incredible. Uh, there was starvation. There were plagues. There was famine. There was all these things going on. There were riots and uh, the city broke into factions and were killing each other, fighting each other. Uh, there were there was looting. There was uh, basically you, you've seen the riots and the, the mob on, on TV in different cities uh, in modern times. It, that was that was what was going on to the extent that um, it was almost like the people who the people who uh, have written about it, uh, historians who were who were close to the time that it happened or who were actually there we're going to read a a, a, a historian who was actually there um, they describe it as if as if the demonic forces were <clears throat> were uh, were let loose on the city and everyone just descended into madness uh, I'm going to read you some portions today as we uh, as we look at this and it's just unbelievable um, there were people by the time the, the Roman siege lasted exactly three and a half years times times and times and a half uh, and uh, it by the time that they actually broke through the wall the 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 final wall and and came into the city there were jewish people in the city that were longing for rome to come just to relieve them from the the madness and the 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 craziness and the the suffering that they were going through inside the city um it was uh it was it was absolutely amazing i mean we're talking about uh bodies being thrown over the wall because there was no place to put them houses were filled with bodies i mean we're talking incredible by the time the historian we're going to look at, uh, Josephus, who was actually there, he was a general in the Jewish army, uh, and after his uh, battalion, I guess, was 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 killed, he was uh, he was captured by the Romans, and they uh, they let him live, and he later became a historian, writing about the times of you know about all this that had went on. He said when the Romans finally broke through, he said the blood ran in the streets. I mean, he actually said it that way. It was it was. Um, it was for a Jewish man, woman, boy, or girl in the city. It was the end of the world. I mean, it was it was absolutely uh, apocalyptic in nature. This was this was the end, and it was uh, it was devastating. So we'll read more about that as we <clears throat> as we go through and, and look at these things. But I needed you to see. I need you to see that I'm going to be as consistent as I can. And let me say this one more one more time. I know I'm taking a long time getting started here, but if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I don't I'm not going to have any arguments or debates. People who are godly people, Christian people, they're on both sides of the issue. Uh, I just I, I'm giving you I'm giving you uh, 
my conviction, my interpretation. It's also the the interpretation. It's not a new new thing. It's been around for you know thousands of years. Uh, people have understood the fulfillment to be Jerusalem's destruction for a very long time. Uh, so you can go and and look these up uh, where other people have said this. This is not new. It's not novel. It's not something that I came up with on my own. And you know, wow, check me out. Um, so understand that these these are not issues that we as Christians should divide over or should break fellowship with each other over. It's just not that way. And so if if you're one of the people, this is a very emotional topic. I understand that people are wedded to their view of the end times. If you're one of those people, you know, maybe you shouldn't listen. Maybe you should, um, you know, just uh, uh, just keep yourself from from you know, uh, uh, challenging your worldview because it's not worth, it's not worth breaking fellowship with a church that loves you or a pastor that loves you or a Christian brother or sister that is invested. In it. It's just not worth it. It's not worth it. Uh, these are issues that we can disagree about and talk about. And so, um, that's what, that's what we're going to do. The, the chapter, the chapter six in revelation is the breaking of the seals. In, in, in chapter five, we saw that the lamb took the book from the one who sat on the throne and we saw that it was, um, it was uh, the book is the the uh, book of the covenant, the covenant stipulations and promises, and and the Lamb was worthy to take the book because he had been slain, and he had redeemed uh, a people uh, unto God, and that's why he is worthy. Only one, only one who has fulfilled the covenant is worthy to take uh, to take the uh, covenant and release the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And so we saw that. So the seals are about to be broken. In, in chapter six, he's going to break. Uh, uh, the six, the first six seals. Uh, the seventh seal is not going to be broken until chapter eight. But we're going to look at these six seals, and I'm going to try to uh, I'm going to try to give you a little context, a little history as we go along, and show you kind of the Old Testament backgrounds to these to these pictures. Um, the first four seals, you probably already know this. They're going to release four horsemen. Okay, you're you're probably well acquainted with the picture of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They've uh, uh, they've been depicted in paintings and movies and things like that for a long time. Um, but many people don't see the connection that these horsemen have with the Old Testament. And, and we've we've often noted that in order to understand the book rightly, I said this at the beginning, you got to understand the backdrop of the symbols uh, through these Old Testament roots. But the picture of the different color horsemen. Different color horses. It comes from the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah six verses one through eight, uh, we're shown uh, four groups of different colored horses and and chariots. Uh, they're they're sent by God to patrol the earth, uh, punishing the nations that are oppressing God's people. So right off the bat, we know that these colored horses are are something that we've seen before. They're they're a method of judgment that God brought forth on mankind. But there's uh, there's another Old Testament prophet in the background of this passage too. Look down. I hope you have your Bible open. I hope you have it turned to Revelation six, and I hope you have a pen and a note and a notebook because I'm going to be giving you script. Uh, and references, and you need to go and look these up. Don't just take my word for it. Look that. Look at them in context. Test everything. Test everything. Uh, in Revelation six eight, 
when you later we're going to get down to the fourth horseman he fourth horseman is said to be death and uh, let's look at what he brings uh in, in revelation 6 8 verse 8 it says authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth earth these four elements of judgment are almost an exact quote from Ezekiel 1421 uh, Ezekiel 1421 let me read it to you it says for thus said the Lord God how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem sword famine wild beasts and plague or pestilence to cut off man and beast from it in the in the in the Greek text of the Old Testament the Septuagint uh, and in the Greek text of Revelation 6 8 these two phrases are identical other than other than word order uh, so John's vision of this this horseman, this fourth horseman, uh, it, it's a it's a culmination of it might be the culmination of all the other horsemen. That's debatable, but it's definitely it's it's quoted in Ezekiel. He's quoting from Ezekiel fourteen twenty one. And did you notice who the judgment was against in in Ezekiel? Let me read it again to you. It was against Jerusalem. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, beasts, and pestilence. So as we walk through the opening of these seals, we're going to see that it refers to the same events that Jesus describes as signs leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Whether I, I was going to do that in Matthew chapter 24, but... I didn't do it. Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples specifically come to Jesus and they say, Jesus told them, you see this temple, you see Jerusalem here, not one stone is going to be left on another. And the disciples specifically come to him and says, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? They kind of conflated the destruction of the temple when the destruction of Jerusalem with the end of the world. And Jesus lays out the signs. Um, he gives them signs to understand uh, the coming of the destruction of the temple but when he switches over to talk about the end he, he gives them no sign he basically says of that day no one knows not the angels not not the son only the father and he tells them they, they just need to be ready they need to be ready because there's going to be one in the field and another one's going to be taken and and that kind of thing so Let's start in Revelation chapter six, and I'm going to I'm going to try to uh, explain as we go, and show you that uh, I'm I'm really trying to be consistent here in our interpretation. And even if you even if you reject it and want to hold to dispensationalism or another form of premillennialism or whatever, you know it's fine. Uh, it's not not the end of the world for me. I just want you to see that uh, that I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to be consistent. Uh, and and if we can agree that that I'm being as consistent as I can, then you know I, I feel like I've done what I was supposed to do. So it says Revelation six one says, then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a loud voice of thunder, come as a. Uh, as we see each of the first four seals broken, one of the living creatures is going to call forth a different color rider. Now, before we look at the, the white horse, you should probably be aware that uh, there's a textual variant here. Some manuscripts show the creature's voice as saying, come and see, as if it's as if he's commanding John to come and look what's happening. And others, other manuscripts simply say, come, as if the living creature is uh, is commanding the rider himself to come, to come forth. Um, there's very early papyri manuscripts called P115 that just has come. 
and you know, and there's other important you know codexes as well. Alexandrinus has just come, uh, but there's also some very important manuscripts that have come in C. Uh, Sinaiticus is one that has that. So uh, you know, I leave that to you. Either way, the four horsemen will come forth at the breaking of the seals. So the first seal is broken. And here comes the result. Verse two says, I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, scholars and commentators pretty much agree that on the other three horsemen, you know, that, that who they are, we're going to see them war, pestilence, uh, death. Uh, pretty much everybody agrees about them, about their identification. Anyway, um, there's disagreement about the time frame, of course. But but this white horse. This white horse is widely debated amongst every circle. I don't care what view uh, of Revelation you hold. There's going to be segments within your view that disagree on who this white horse is, or who this white horseman is. Whether you're a preterist, there's preterists that believe he's this or that. There's futurists that believe he's this or that. There's uh, there's disagreement in every camp about who this, this white horseman is. Um, so... Uh, what we what we need to do is we need to tread carefully be be humbly respectful of other people's views and, and just try to figure it out as best we can using the information that we were given i'm going to just give you some different views uh, that people hold, the reasons for their views, and then I'm going to tell you what I think and, and leave you to decide. Uh, there, first, many people see the writer as Christ himself or, or a personification of the gospel going forth. It's conquering. Uh, it brings people into the kingdom. It's going forth. And, and there's lots of reasons for this. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, we're going to see, we're definitely going to see Christ riding a white horse there. And he's said to conquer and wear many crowns, many diadems. Um, and since white always portrays uh, connotations of righteousness in Revelation, and that's a fact, uh, the writer here must be Christ, you know, must be uh, the righteous one. That's a thought process anyway. And, and since we've already seen the connection between Jesus' prophecy on the Mount of Olives in Revelation 6, we should also note that, that uh, you know, Christ says there in Matthew 24 that the gospel will go forth to the world before the, before the end will come, before the destruction of, of uh, the, the, the old covenant remnants, before the destruction of the temple. And uh, uh, also in favor of this position is that really this is the only rider, the white rider here uh, is the only rider that doesn't have some kind of woe or judgment uh, directly attached to him, related to him. The other riders are going to explicitly bring death and war and famine and all those things. But here the white rider is said just to go out conquering and to conquer. Um, there are also some allusions people draw from the Psalms about, you know, in the Psalms, Yahweh's portrayed as riding a horse, shooting arrows at his enemies. But you, you kind of get the idea. This, the first view is that it is Christ himself, or it is like a personification of the gospel going out to conquer, the word of God going out to conquer and to, uh, um, to bring people into the kingdom. Uh, another view is uh, many people see the white rider as, as the anti-Christ. So you got the Christ on the one hand, you got the Antichrist on the other hand. He's riding out in judgment to uh, to conquer. Uh, this is the you know the the end time ruler. Uh, since the other three horsemen bring judgment and woe, it, to be honest, it really would make sense that this rider would be a part of the set 
you know, so to speak, uh, the four severe judgments. You know, it'd be it, it wouldn't be like one is good and the other three are bad, but all four are come forth when the, each seal is broken and they are judgments, uh, all four. And so you, you go back to the Ezekiel passage we quoted earlier. Uh, it talks about God bringing four severe judgments. And it's hard for some to wrap their minds around the fact that, that these seals bring forth judgment, uh, but not the first one. You know, no, the first one's different. Uh, and to be honest, that's a that's a good argument. I kind of I kind of I kind of agree with that. Um, the first one, you know, it, it, it's part of the four. It's part of the four horsemen. It's part of the four judgments. So the thinking goes that this white horse, this white horse rider, is really just a paradox, a uh, a parody of Christ. It's the Antichrist trying to look like the righteous one. And in all honesty, you know, all honesty, if you if you actually compare this picture of this white rider with Christ on the white horse in Revelation 19, you're going to see that really the only similarity is the color of the horse. Uh, Revelation 19, Christ wears diadems. Here, the crown he wears is a, a, a Stephanus. Um, here, the rider is uh, carrying a bow, and and there, it's a sword. And and you know, there's just major differences. Really, the only similarity is the whiteness uh, of the horse and the rider. And so, that's another view that it's the anti, the antichrist. And uh, third, there's uh, many people just take the rider as a personification of conquest. He's uh, he is um, he is the conqueror. You know, conquering is going on. The other three, the other three horsemen personify war, famine, and 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 pestilence, death. So it makes sense that this first horseman would personify some form of divine judgment as well and he said to go out conquering and to conquer so um, military conquest is a personification of military conquest which is going on and to be honest a lot of people see that uh, this conquest was going on Uh, the Vespasian is in view here in a, in a lot of thought processes, he was given given authority to conquer and subdue the land, uh, not just given authority by Caesar, but it seems as if he was given authority by God as a rod of judgment to come against the people in the same way that God prophesied that Babylon and Assyria were <clears throat> were his armies, his rod of judgment that he brought against his people when they when they refused to obey them. So before the actual siege of Jerusalem, I told you this Vespasian conquered city after city, going town after town, uh, subjecting everyone. Uh, He was indeed conquering, and he was indeed intending to conquer. So those are kind of the three options. They're little subsets of each one, but those are the basic three options for the white rider. You can decide for yourself which one you think the evidence supports best. Best, and you know, there's other lines of evidence as well. Those were that was very simplistic, very short. Uh, we could go in depth with, with each one, but if you're interested uh, in what I think, I don't think this is Christ Himself because uh, you know it's the Lamb who breaks the seals, and you know uh, it kind of seems strange that the Lamb breaks the seal and then the Lamb looks and the Lamb and Christ is going forth on the horse. But however, I do see some merit in thinking that this is the gospel or the Word of God going forth to conquer. The biggest hang-up I have with the view is that. 
is that the horses do seem to be a set. They seem to be a set of judgments. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me to separate the white horse out as being different when when the text really doesn't give us any warrant for it. We already know that the text is referring to the groups of horses sent out in Zechariah chapter 4. And how many groups were there in Zechariah chapter 4? There were four of them. Uh, and so it, the, from the Old Testament picture, I don't see any, I don't see any warrant to separate these out. Um, they kind of all go together, bringing God's judgment on the oppressors of his people in Zechariah 4. That's what they were doing. Uh, but we also remember that the gospel itself does go out in judgment. You know, those who accept it are saved by it. Those who reject it are judged and condemned by it. So I think there's a lot of weight to the idea that this writer is, it might be the personification of God's word in the gospel. Um I, I really don't see any sense in claiming it's the Antichrist. Um, that's importing ideas from other areas into this text. In fact, the word Antichrist doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible except for First John. I think it appears once in Second John, but it's First John. That's the only place it appears. And, and so, you know, I, I, I do see some merit in the fact that it could be the conquest of armies that were marching through Judea, conquering towns as they went. Um, that would line up pretty good with the actual events and the context uh, of the horsemen, you know, in this chapter. If you put a gun to my head and made me choose 100%, I would have to go with the military conquest, personification of conquest, uh, because what follows this rider is going to be definitely the effects of military conquest. It's going to be war, famine, it's going to be death, all those things. Uh, and they're all associated with people being conquered by foreign invaders in all kinds of wars, in every war. And we're going to see these things happen specifically in Jerusalem. But hey, you know, if you hold a different view, I'm not going to fight over the issue. I have, I have, um, inclinations in different ways. You know, I told you, I do see some merit in the, the fact that it, it's the gospel going forth. But if you back me against the wall and made me choose 100%, I'm going to, at this point, I'm going to say it's military conquest. I'm going to say it's personification of conquest. You know, the conqueror goes forth to conquer. That's what he's going to do. He's, uh, he's riding on a white horse like all the Roman generals did. And so that's, that's kind of where I stand. Uh, the rider is, uh, he's given the victor's crown. We saw that before, Stephanus, uh, ensuring that uh, he's going to be successful in his conquering. He said to hold a bow in his hand, and each of these riders is going to have a different thing in their hand. And, uh, you know, lots of people have commented about what the bow means. Uh, it's definitely a weapon. It's definitely a weapon that's used from a distance. You know, and as we said before, some people see this uh, point back to Psalm. Uh, I think it's Psalm forty-five. I'm just doing that off the top of my head, but it's where God shoots his arrows at his enemies. Um, but it's it's probably just a picture of the conquering general leading his army to battle. Uh, so the conqueror has been set loose, and naturally, what's going to follow when the conqueror goes forth to conquer? Uh, war, bloodshed are going to follow revelation six verse three and four say when he broke the second seal i heard a living creatures uh i heard the second living creature saying come and another a red horse went out and to him who sat on it it was granted to take peace from the earth that men would slay one another and a great sword was was given to him uh, just as Jesus prophesied that one of the signs of the coming destruction of the temple would be wars and rumors of wars, the second rider represents war. Uh, the, I mean, it's pretty obvious. The, the rider's red in color, and the rider's allowed to 
take peace away from the earth. And the result of him taking that peace is that men are going to kill one another, going to slay one another. And, and what you're seeing here in the second horseman is God removing the restraints of man's evil. God actively restrains the evil of men so that the world and mankind, you know, are not nearly as bad as they could be. Uh, it's God's hand that's holding back the evil of man. And, and, and when that hand is released, man goes after the every intent of his heart. God has taken peace from the land and, and, and men respond accordingly. Now, <clears throat> our translation here that I'm reading from uh, says that he will take peace from the earth. Uh, but the word, the, the Greek word that's used for, for earth here is gay. Uh, and so uh, the word gay here can also be translated as land. Uh, I think we talked about this before in an earlier episode, but depending on the context, gay can mean land, it can mean earth, it can mean ground. Uh, in, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament, the land, as in the promised land, is all you know is is often translated with this word uh, there are three main words that mean earth or world uh you have cosmos which is you know the world world the entire spectrum of the world you have oikumene which is the inhabited world you know that's what it says when caesar put out a decree that all the world should be taxed he was talking about the inhabited world not you know he wasn't sending people to south america to tax the native you know americans or whatever uh and then you have gay which is uh, the ground, the land, the the actual terra firma. Um, and different contexts require different translations. It doesn't always mean that. You know, it depends on word meaning always comes in context. It never comes uh, outside of context that it's used. So when when the Septuagint, the Old Testament, is using, uh, when it's when it's wanting to translate uh, the land of Israel will always use this word gay uh, the land for land so the writer here takes peace uh, from the land and it, I can make a good case that you could translate this the land and when the land with definite article the land is spoken of uh, it's always a reference to the land of Israel the promised land the land that uh, uh, God's old covenant people were to inherit and this is exactly what Jesus was prophesying in the events that ran up to the destruction of Jerusalem. He said there'd be wars and rumors of wars. There'd be persecution, martyrdoms. Uh, the people would, uh, would you know, take you and, and kill you in the synagogues and all those things. And in the destruction of Jerusalem and the events leading up to it, we see these events being played out. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, who I mentioned before, who was actually there during the Jewish war, he records these events. I'm going to read this section from you. It's from Wars of the Jews. It's uh, it's book two, uh, paragraph 18, uh, section two. And it says, <clears throat> it says, so that the disorders in all Syria were terrible. And every city was divided into into two armies, encamped one against another. And the preservation of the one party was in the destruction of the other. So the daytime was spent in shedding of blood and the night in fear, which was which was of the two more terrible. Uh, for when the Syrians thought they had ruined the Jews, they had the Judaizers in suspicion also. And as each side did not care to slay.
slay those whom they suspected on the other, so did they greatly fear them when they were mingled with each other as if they were certainly foreigners. Moreover, greediness of gain was a provocation to kill the opposite party, even to such as had of old appeared very mild and gentle towards them, for they without fear plundered the effects of the slain and carried off the spoils of those whom they slew in their own houses as if they had been gained in a set battle and he was esteemed a man of honor who got the greatest share as having prevailed over the greatest number of his enemies it was then common to see cities filled with dead bodies still lying unburied and those of old men mixed with infants all dead and scattered about together women also lay amongst them without any covering for their nakedness uh, you might then see the whole province full of inexpressible calamities while the dread of still more barbarous practices which were threatened and everywhere greater than what had already been perpetrated and so Josephus is writing about this uh, this attitude where peace had just been taken from the land. I mean, it was, he said, in, in all these cities, in every city, there was factions set up against each other. People were dying. People, you know, this this was this was going on. Uh, and and to be honest. It, it just grew and grew and grew until the Romans, when they were the Romans were going about taking these cities, uh, when the Romans came and finally sacked Jerusalem, finally besieged Jerusalem. Uh, Josephus writes about this actual bes- besieging of Jerusalem. He says there were besides disorders and civil wars in every city. He says besides disorders and civil wars in every city, and all those that were a quiet from the Romans turned their hands one against another this was going on uh, amongst the Jews there was also a bitter contest between those that were fond of war and those that were desirous of peace at the first this quarrelsome temper caught hold of private families uh, who could not agree amongst themselves after which those people that were the dearest to one another broke through all restraints in regard to each other and everyone associated with those of his own opinion uh, and began already to stand in opposition to one another so that seditions arose everywhere, uh, while those that were for innovations and were desirous of war uh, by their youth and boldness were, were too hard for the aged and the prudent man. And in the first place, all the people of every place betook themselves uh, to rep- to repine, after which they got together in bodies, uh, they gathered the bodies, in order to rob the people of the country, insomuch that for the barbarity and iniquity, those of the same nation did no way differ from the Romans. Nay, it seemed to be much lighter thing to be ruined by the Romans than by themselves. Uh, these wars and seditions were going on, these uprisings, these uh, internal fights were going on so much that it seemed the very last line right there Josephus said it seemed to be much lighter thing to be ruined by the Romans than by themselves so one of the things that we're going to see as we look through the historical records of the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecies describing the destruction of the temple is that the people inside the city of Jerusalem it just seems like they went crazy Uh, I mean, there just isn't any rational explanation to the things that went on in the city while Rome blockaded it from the outside, Uh, except that, I mean, I guess 
except that God had just simply removed his hand of restraint and just let them spiral down into into madness. The events leading up to Jerusalem's destruction saw a removal of peace in the land, in every town, in every city, as the Romans were systematically conquering the region, it was as if the Jews themselves lost control and began rising up against each other. They were literally slaughtering each other. Uh, we'll see more of this as we continue. Uh, the, the the bringer of war, this red rider, uh, he was given power by God because the lamb has has broken the seal of the covenant judgment to take peace away from the land. So when 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 we have the first horseman, who is the conqueror and the red horseman uh, who removes peace, when these events start, you can pretty much imagine what comes next. It's going to be it's going to be starvation. It's going to be famine, and we see that as well. Revelation 6, 5, and 6 says, uh, When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and wine. Now the black horseman rides out when the third seal is broken. The rider is given a pair of scales, and we are going to see that these scales are for weighing food. Uh, he represents famine because we hear one of the living creatures say a quart of wheat for a denarius, uh, three quarts of barley for a denarius. Once again, remember that this is one of the signs that Jesus predicted would be the beginning of the, the birth pangs of the destruction of Jerusalem. And, and we saw also uh, that there were many famines in the, in the, in the first century. We, 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 if you look through the, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look through, you can see famines uh, all through the first, I mean, there was a famine in, in, uh, in Acts. Um, there were there were famines in, in Rome. There were three famines during the Rome of Claudius. There were there were famines all over, and, and so this is something that portends to the 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 first century, just like it you know has happened throughout history. Um, but you got to also remember that famine is one of the covenant curses promised to the to national Israel if they break the covenant. Uh, it, it was a curse pronounced by God if they refuse to keep covenant with him. Leviticus 26, 26 says, When I break your staff of bread, ten women will bake your bread in one oven, and they will bring back your bread in rationed amounts, so that you will eat and not be satisfied. And the person steeped in the Old Testament, uh, you know, you might also recognize that God had done this. uh, He had done this to his people in judgment before. Ezekiel prophesied of Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem and the events leading up to it. In Ezekiel 4, 16 and 17, it says, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight. And with anxiety, and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. So this is not something new. God had done this to to Jerusalem before as the Babylonians came to destroy them. Uh, So here we're seeing the same picture. God has released the black rider with the the scales, uh, the voice declaring the stipulations of the famine. He says a quart of wheat for a denarius. Uh, A quart of wheat was it was approximately a day's ration for a single person. Uh, And uh, we we know from other texts and and even in the New Testament that a denarius was a day's wage uh, for just common labor. So 
You have a day's wage going for a day's ration for one person. And three quarts of barley was enough of a ration for, you know, a small family, uh, which also cost a denarius. Uh, so this would be about probably by some accounts, it'd be about eight times the normal price for wheat, about five times the normal price for barley in the region. Uh, and, and we probably should make mention that the staple diet in the first century was grain based. So, I mean, it wasn't exactly like they could just run out to the field and kill a bull, you know, uh, um, they couldn't run to the grocery store and get something else. Um, the point of the text is telling us that the price of food is such that the people are spending every penny that they earn, just to buy food. There's nothing left. Uh, the man goes out and works for the day, earning enough to buy a single ration of barley for his family. Uh, they get to eat that ration, and that's it. And then he goes out the next day, and he goes to buy a, you know, he goes to work all day for a single ration for his family. Or, or if he chose to get wheat, it would be just enough for himself. Um, there is so much lack of food and poverty that they are literally uh, barely surviving day to day. The famine in the land during the Roman invasion was absolutely horrifying. Uh, once again, let me just read from Josephus' record. And I know it's it's hard. They're, these are big sections of, uh, of text that I'm reading. But just try to, I'm going to read it a little slower, try to focus on what he's saying. Uh, this He's talking about inside the city as the Romans blockaded. It says, the madness of the seditious, those who were, you know, fighting against each other, did also increase together with their famine. And both those miseries were every day inflamed more and more. Their famine was inflamed more and more. For there was no corn, which anywhere appeared publicly. But the robbers came running into and searched men's private houses. And then if they found any, they tormented them. If they found any food, they tormented the people that were hiding it. Because they had denied they had any. And if they found none, they tormented them worse. Because they supposed they had more carefully concealed it. Uh, the indication they made use of whether they had it or not was taken from the bodies of these miserable wretches, which if the if their body, what he's saying is if their body <clears throat> were in good case, if it was in good shape, they suppose they were in no want at all of food. But if they were wasted away, they walked off without searching any farther, nor did they think it proper to kill such as these because they saw that they would soon die of themselves uh, for want of food. Many there were indeed who who sold what they had for one measure. It was if it was of wheat, if they were of richer sort, but of barley, if they were of poorer. You see it? Wheat, if they were of richer sort, barley, if they were poor. They sold all they had for one measure. This is Josephus, Wars of the Jews, uh, Book 5, Section 10, Paragraph 2. Uh, and he says, uh, when these had done, had so done, when they bought this, they sold all they had for a measure of barley. It says they shut themselves up in the inmost rooms of their houses and ate the corn they had gotten. Some did it without grinding by reason of the extremity of the want they were in. They just ate it without even cooking it up. And others baked bread of it according as necessity and fear dictated them. A table was nowhere laid for a distinct meal. But they snatched the bread out of the fire, half-baked, and ate it hastily. And and during the actual siege of Jerusalem, when the Romans surrounded the city and wouldn't let anything in or, in or out, there was initially enough food uh, for for 
the the Jews in the city. There were stockpiles of food, but the factions were fighting in the city, and they would repeatedly destroy each other's food supplies, causing you know the famine to grow worse and to grow worse quicker. So starvation was running rampant. Uh, in fact, I'm going to read to you an absolutely horrifying account in Josephus about just how bad the famine got. But before I do that, I want to read to you Deuteronomy 28:53. Uh, this is the covenant curse that God promises to the people if they fail to keep covenant. And it says, Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifty-two and 53, this is what God promised would happen if they failed to keep covenant. It says, it shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. This is Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifty-two, And it shall besiege you in your towns throughout your land, which the Lord your God has given you. Then you shall eat the offspring of your own body, the flesh of your sons and of your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you during the siege and the distress by which your enemy will oppress you. Now, hear that in Deuteronomy 28, 52 and 53, God says the famine is going to be so bad when when these armies besiege you. If you break covenant with me that you are going to eat your own children. You're going to eat your own sons and daughters. The Lord promises. I mean, how awful is that? Now, I want to read you a portion from Josephus' account of the Jewish war. Uh, It's a pretty lengthy section. Uh, It's from book six, uh, section three, paragraph four uh, of wars of the Jews. It says it says now this is a lengthy section. So so listen, there was a certain woman that dwelt beyond Jordan. Her name was Mary. Her father was Eleazar of the village uh, Bethazob, which signifies the house of Hyssop. She was eminent for her family and her wealth and had fled away to Jerusalem with the rest of the multitude. Uh, This is as the Romans were were conquering and was with them besieged therein. So she was she was she fled to Jerusalem. She was in the city when the Romans set siege to it. The other effects of this woman had been already seized upon, such, I mean, as she had brought with her out of Perea. This is where she came, removed to the city. Uh, What she had treasured up besides, as also what food she had contrived to save, had been also carried off by the rapacious guards. Those that were in the city took all her food. Then they came every day running into her house for that purpose. Uh, This put the poor woman in a very great passion, and by the frequent reproaches and imprecations she cast at these rapacious villains, there's a lot of big words, she provoked them to anger against her. But none of them, either out of indignation she had raised against herself or of the commiseration of her case, would take her life. They wouldn't kill her. And if she found any food, she perceived her labors were for others and not for herself. And it was now become impossible for her anyway to find any more food. When she did find food, she was she was giving it to others. And now the 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 starvation had, you know, the, the famine had reached the point where she couldn't find any more food. And it says, while the while the famine pierced through her very bowels and marrow, when also her passion was fired to a degree beyond the famine itself, nor did she consult with anything but with her passion and the necessity she was in. Listen to me. She then attempted a most unnatural thing and snatching up her son, who was a child sucking at her breast. She said, oh, thou miserable infant for whom shall I preserve thee in this war? This famine and this sedition as to the war with the Romans, if they 
preserve our lives, we will be slaves. This famine also will destroy us even before that slavery comes. Yet are these seditious rogues, the people that were raging in the city, uh, more terrible than both the other? And then she says, this is what Josephus writes. Come on, come now, be thou my food and be thou of a fury to these seditious varlets and by and a byword to the world, which is all that is now wanting to complete the calamities of us Jews. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son and then roasted him and ate the one half of him and kept the other half by by her concealed upon this the seditious those seditious men that were coming rampaging stealing and looting came in presently and smelling the horrid scent of this food they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten already she replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them and and then uncovered what was left of her son Hereupon they were seized with a horror and amazement of mind and stood astonished at the sight when she said to them, this is mine own son and what hath been done was my own doing. Come and eat this food for I have eaten it of it myself. So understand that this famine is not just, hey, dang, we're hungry. Uh, the same the same covenant curse of famine with the same events that were prophesied by God in Deuteronomy 28. If the people did not keep covenant, uh, they would eat their own children are events that are explicitly rendered to us by Josephus, uh, a, a, a person who was there during the siege, uh, during the, the wars of the Jews. And understand, he was not a Christian. He was not interested in, in preserving Christianity or making Christ's promises fulfill nothing. He was a Jewish man that, that turned Roman. And so the voice that sends forth the black rider also says not to touch the wine and oil. Uh, there, of course, there's no shortage of these products because nobody could afford them. Uh, they were luxury items, and the only thing that, that people could get were the basic necessities. But I won't read you the section because I've already read so much. Uh, but there was a leader of one of the seditions in the city of Jerusalem named uh, John Geshala uh, who took it upon himself um, and, and emptied the vessels of sacred wine and oil from the temple, and he distributed them among the multitude of the city. So at this point, they didn't have much food. But they had lots of of wine and oil. Uh, So we've seen conquest. We've seen wars. We've seen famine. Uh, Now the fourth seal is then broken. And the fourth rider is set forth. And we've already talked about him a little. In Revelation 6, verses 7 through 8, it says, When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades followed with him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, and with wild beasts of the earth. Uh, it is here in verse 8 that John quotes Ezekiel uh, fourteen twenty one, which was a promise of judgment on Jerusalem, uh, but first we've got to look at the horse's color. You know what color? You know most people that have heard this voice, uh, heard this uh, verse many times, were expecting me to say pale horse. You know, and I, and I looked in a pale horse, the one who's selling his death. That's what it says in Tombstone, anyway. So what were the what color was it? You know, there's so many different translations. Uh, the words chlorus this might be where we get the word Clorox. I don't know. It has been translated pale, uh, dappled, uh, ashen, but the actual color of the horse is a sickly green color. 
so it's actually a green horse. Uh, you may not have ever heard that before, but that's what it is. Uh, I, I know you, you know you probably thought of that gray speckled horse that Clint Eastwood rode in Pale Rider, uh, but the color is actually green. Uh, the word chloros is used. It's used in Mark six thirty nine and in Revelation eight seven to describe green grass. Uh, you know, and, and the word is also used in classical Greek as a lighter shade, like a pale, like a pale green. Uh, so, despite all the cool posters and the drawings that you've seen of the fourth horseman, the fourth horseman riding his ghostly looking horse, the horse is actually green. Uh, and we're going to see that it denotes pestilence and plague, and, and of course that's why it's green. Uh, the rider is called Death. He is the only rider who is named, and John says that hell follows with him. Hades follows with him. Uh, you know, there's some that translate the word hell, but the word is Hades. It's Hades. It's the sphere of the dead. It's the realm of the dead. Later in Revelation, we're going to see that both death and Hades uh, will be thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death, which is actually hell itself, Gehenna. Uh, there are many places in the Old Testament where death and Hades are used synonymously. But we see here that the writer is given authority to bring four uh, four judgments to kill with the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. This is this is the quote from Ezekiel, uh, where God promised these judgments on Jerusalem. <clears throat> but these judgments are also listed in God's covenant curse against Israel if they fail to keep the covenant. You can find them in Leviticus twenty six, verse twenty five and twenty six, and you can find them in Deuteronomy thirty two. Uh, 24 and 25. Let me read Deuteronomy 32, 24 and 25 to you. It says, They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction, and the teeth of beasts I will send upon them when the venom of crawling things of, of the dust, dust uh, outside the sword uh, will outside the sword will bereave and inside terror. And this is exactly what happened. Outside, the sword was killed. The Romans were outside, and inside, there was there was terror in the city. The writers give it authority over one-fourth of the land. Uh, and, and as we see in Revelation, we're going to see this continue, that the judgments that we see, the, the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, they're going to get more and more severe. They're going to get more and more intense. And, for you know, for example, we look at the trumpet section, and the trumpets will affect one-third of the land instead of one-fourth of the land. And so they're going to get more and more encompassing. And so that by the end, the entire land is subsumed. <clears throat> so the first four seals have been opened. And the judgment's poured out. There are only there are only three to go, but but only two more are going to be opened in this chapter. Seven seals open in in chapter eight. Uh, after a pause in chapter seven, uh, the fifth seal doesn't seem to bring forth judgment, but instead it just it changes the scene and brings us back to the throne room of God that we've seen before, and to the martyrs who are under the altar. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11 all at one time, and then we'll try to talk about them so we can wind this up. We're getting kind of long, I think. It says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I would say land. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed were to be killed, even as they had been uh, would be completed also. Uh, these uh, martyrs are are underneath the heavenly altar. Uh, it seems a little weird, doesn't it? That uh, you know, what are they doing under there? Uh, 
well, remember that the old in the Old Testament, when animals were sacrificed by the priests as offerings to God, the blood of the animal ran down the altar, and the priest was told to pour out the blood at the base of the altar. And the life of the, the life of the flesh is in the blood. These martyrs are seen at the base of the altar. They are they are sacrificial victims in the events that have been and are being portrayed. Uh, they were killed for their testimony and the word of God. Now, <clears throat> notice that these faithful martyrs are not in they're not in Hades awaiting judgment. They are, you know, not in some kind of soul sleep somewhere. They're not in a holding tank or anything like that. They are in the presence of God and their voices are heard by God as they cry out for justice. They're crying, how long will you let our blood go unavenged? So who are these people? Uh, why were they killed? And what do they want God to do to give them justice? Those are the those are the questions that we need to answer to see what's going on here. It, it doesn't take much effort to read through the book of Acts and see the persecution, murder of believers. James was murdered. Stephen was murdered. Uh, we know, you know, multitude of believers whose names that we've never even heard of were martyred. <clears throat> Even in the letter to Smyrna, you know, Christ prepares the church for the persecution that's coming, saying they must be faithful to death. But here's something that we need to see as well. I don't think this is just New Testament believers who've been persecuted and killed. Uh, I think it, it, it includes the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament saints, uh, those who have trusted the promises of God, those those who have uh, cried out uh, against, uh, you know, for the people's repentance and those things. Uh, four times in Revelation, John talks about believers as those who hold the testimony of Jesus. Uh, you know, and in Revelation 20, verse 4, John sees the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. In the very beginning of Revelation, John says that he was exiled to the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. But here, these martyrs are said to have been slain for the word of God and for their testimony or their witness. Uh, the testimony of Jesus is conspicuously absent here. Why is the, why is it phrased differently only here? Um, I believe it's because these are those who, who testified to the word of God in every age. Um, you may not have ever have ever thought about this before, but God's people, his prophets and those he sent to speak to his people have always been persecuted and killed. Let me read to you what Jesus said in Matthew 23 uh, verses 29 through 36. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against Against yourselves, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Listen here. So that upon you, he's talking to these scribes and Pharisees, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Listen, truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 23. 
verse 36. And so we see that uh, the martyrs that are under the, the, under the altar are crying out against that generation. They're crying out, how long will you let our blood go unavenged? These are the prophets. These are the Old Testament saints. These are the New Testament martyrs. These are all those who, who have been killed. And Jesus foretold that the blood of, of all the way back to Abel, the blood of all of them would come down upon the heads of that generation that he was speaking to. And it, and it, it certainly did. And we can also look at Luke thirteen thirty three. In Luke thirteen thirty three, it says, "Nevertheless, Jesus speaking. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem." He's saying that all the prophets have been killed in Jerusalem, and then uh, Stephen's speech in, in Acts chapter seven, verse fifty one and verse fifty two. In Stephen's speech, Stephen tells them, "You men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just what you're." fathers did which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one whose betrayers and murderers you now have become and so we see that these people under the altar i mean it had been told over and over and over again that 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 the blood of the prophets was going to be held uh, that generation would be held accountable for them uh, Jesus words in Luke chapter 11, verse 47 through 51, he, he basically says the same thing that he said earlier, uh, you know, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar. He says it shall be charged against this generation. So who are these martyrs? They are all those whose blood Jesus promised would come upon the generation in the first century. They you know, uh, the the Jewish people had rejected the prophets and those sent to her. They had now rejected the very son of God. Their blood now cries out for justice, begging God to rain down justice on their persecutors. And then these martyrs are given white robes, something we've seen before, and they're told to rest for a short while until the number of their fellow servants and brothers are complete. Here God's telling them that many more are going to be martyred, and indeed they will be. And, and finally, we're going to come to the end of the sixth seal, which is the last one opened in this chapter. It says, I looked and when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became as blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So this is this is where a lot of people kind of go off the rails. Now, if we just take it on its face. This is the end of the world. I mean, Revelation should stop right here because this is it. This is the end. Uh, you know, it, 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 depending on, you know, we've seen the symbolic language, and I'm going to show you what these symbols mean. Uh, Revelation is highly symbolic. If you take this in a wooden literalistic sense, uh, I'm sorry, but if a single star hits the planet, it's all over. <laughs> you know, we're all dead. You know, so we talk about the star, the stars falling to the earth. If that, if that were actually to happen, uh, closest star to us is the sun. Uh, I mean, good luck, <laughs> good luck having anything left. Uh, this is the exact same language that Jesus uses in Matthew 24, Luke 21. It's prophetic decreation language. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. The creator is undoing the creation. And this is uh, this is uh, very common when the prophets describe the destruction of cities. Um, uh, and let me just say this, too, before we start. 
This is exactly why I have taken you on such a long, uh, laborious journey interpreting every little detail of Revelation by looking in the Old Testament, finding the patterns and illusion. I know it's been, I know it's tough to listen to. I mean, it's an hour long of me going on and on and on about what this means and that means. But the reason why I've done that, uh, we're going to interpret these statements the exact same way that we've interpreted the whole book up to this point. Uh, I'm not just going to say, well, hey, the sky fell and, you know, I'm going to look at the Old Testament use of this exact language that's being quoted from the Old Testament. And I'm going to decipher the symbols uh, by using the text that the early church used. I'm going to use the same methodology in uh, understanding these phrases as I have used in the rest of the book of Revelation. And so uh, this language is always used by the prophets in the Old Testament to describe uh, the destruction of cities. And ultimately, it does point forward to a new heavens and a new earth. But this language was used in the Old Testament to describe what was coming in the immediate future for cities. Let me let me demonstrate that to you. In Isaiah chapter 13, I'm going to read you some scriptures, so write them down. Isaiah chapter 13, the prophet Isaiah is describing the coming destruction of Babylon. He describes the judgment on Babylon. This is what he's describing. He describes the judgment on Babylon, the destruction that's coming on Babylon, as if it were the end of the world. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming cruel, With in, in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, is where I'm starting. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises. And the moon will not shed its light. Thus, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold. On and on and on. It says, uh, you know, I'll do this and I'll do that. And then and then in verse 17, it says, Babylon will fall to the Medes. Behold, I am behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. So this whole section is talking about the destruction of Babylon by the, the Medo-Persian army, by the Medes. And, and it's describing that destruction in terms of the sun falling and the sun darkening and the stars won't shine and, and those things. But this isn't the only place that it happens. We see it all through the Old Testament. When Ezekiel describes the destruction that's coming for Egypt in uh, in Ezekiel chapter 32, uh, in verse 2 of chapter 32, he describes this as a prophecy against Pharaoh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Uh, but in verse 7 and 8 of Ezekiel 32, it says, And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land, declares the Lord. And that's that's prophesying the destruction of Egypt. Does anybody... I mean, does anybody really think that the sun quit shining when God destroyed Egypt, when God brought this judgment down upon him? Uh, no, this is prophetic language that is being used by the prophets to describe uh, the uh, the coming apocalyptic nature of the destruction of the city of Egypt. Uh, the same thing when Isaiah prophesies the, the destruction of Adumea, of Edom. Uh, in, ver in chapter 34, verses 3 through 5, it says, So their slain will be thrown out, and their corpses will give off stench, and the mountains will be drenched with their blood, and all the hosts of heaven will wear 
bear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll and their hosts will all wither away as a leaf withers from the vine or as one withers from the fig tree for my sword is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. Uh, Even when Ezekiel foretells a coming nation against Jerusalem, he uses language like this. In Ezekiel 38, 18 and 20, it says it'll come about on that day when Gog comes against the land of Israel. Uh, You know, some take this to mean, you know, this uh, future battle, but I don't. But it says when Gog comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord that my fury will mount up in my anger, in my zeal and my blazing wrath. I will declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are on the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down and steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. Here is what you must understand. When God moves against an earthly nation in judgment, causing the nation to collapse in an upheaval of war, it's almost always described with these prophetic and poetic decreation language the sun always stops shining and the earth always quakes and and to be honest for the for the nation that experiences these things i mean it truly does seem like the end of the world uh we're going to see more of this as we go along but now listen at this point you may not agree with me and that's okay if i've said it once i've said it a million times you know these are not issues that we divide over but even if you don't agree with me You must concede that I'm being consistent. I began this study of Revelation showing you phrase by phrase how the Old Testament pictures are being used uh, and interpreting them based on their context in the Old Testament. I'm doing the same thing here. Uh, For me to take this picture as a literal end of the world would be to abandon the methodology I've used up to this point. We're going to see we're going to see the end. We are going to see the end of the world. Uh, in Revelation, we're going to see the new creation and we are going to see the second coming of Christ. But it isn't pictured here. Uh, these 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 phrases, these ways of speaking are speaking about the destruction of a city, just like they have always been used in the Old Testament to describe the destruction of a city. So let's end up Revelation six fifteen through 17 says, then the kings of the earth, I would say the rulers of the land and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand now that statement about crying for the rocks to fall on you, that probably should sound familiar to you. Um, it's what Jesus told the women on his way to the cross as he pronounced judgment on who? On Jerusalem. He said, this is what he said. He said, daughters of Jerusalem. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the and the breasts that never nursed. Then in verse 30, he says, Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. But you understand Jesus was given a, a judgment there on who? On Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, because there's coming a day when when they're going to say, 
Mountains fall on us. Hills cover us. That's what John says here. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the land, are going to say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the one who sits on the throne. But listen, Jesus wasn't the first person to ever utter these words. Actually, Hosea foresaw the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And in Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, he says, the high places of Avon, which is another name for Israel, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So here is twice once by Jesus and once by Hosea that the destruction of Jerusalem is foretold with the people crying for the mountains and the hills to fall upon them. I don't see how you can apply. I don't see how we can't apply the same context here in Revelations. In, in Revelation, not Revelations. In both contexts, it was Jerusalem's destruction that was foretold. Hosea foretold it by the Babylonian hands. Jesus foretold it by the Roman hands. Uh, finally, in, I just I just can't see how uh, the the destruction the, these prophecies and these things from the Old Testament uh, they are speaking. Jesus specifically used these exact words speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, and John repeats those words as he's given the prophecies. Uh, that uh, that foretell this event. And then finally, in verse 17, uh, it says, the question is asked, who can stand? Who can stand against the wrath of the Lamb? Uh, the wrath of the Lamb has come. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The meek and mild Lamb of God also has wrath. Who can stand before such devastation and judgment? Who is righteous before God? We're going to get the answer to that question uh, in the next uh, in the next section in chapter 7.